What's going on, good people? Welcome back to episode three of the Renaissance Nervous Podcast. Now, I'm your host, Nishad Davis, and I thank you for tuning in for another week of the Renaissance Narratives. Now, I like to start this episode by doing something that uh, I haven't done before, which is first, I want to take time to breathe. So I ask that whether you're in the car, whether you're on a run, whether you're with your friends, whether you're sitting back just relaxing or you're at work and you're listening to this, take a deep breath in. Take a deep breath out and breathe. I ask you to breathe for two reasons. One is because it's important that we open up the space, the frequencies and the energy that comes when we inhale and when we exhale. It's important for us not to be drowned by emotions, not to be overcome by emotions. Although the passion of our emotions is critically necessary to us engineering this movement. It's important that we breathe so that we can think clearly, and that we can also relieve any stress or burdens that come along from us not breathing. We also breathe for the life of George Floyd, who for eight plus minutes left breathless, screaming that I can't breathe. Those words continue to saturate my mind. Those words continue to saturate this time that we're in. And so I ask that you breathe for those who cannot. Um, And I ask that you also breathe life into systems that will eradicate the injustice, the inhumanity, the superiority complexes that have existed in our country for too long. And so we breathe. The second thing is that I wanted to start this episode out with a message. And my message today is don't forget about hope. I remember one time hearing from one of my favorite podcasts, Pod Save the People. And one of the co-hosts, DeRay McKesson, said that freedom is not just the absence of oppression and injustice, but freedom is also the presence of joy and hope. And so just as much as we are radically enraged by the injustices and oppression and the systemic barriers to freedom that have existed in our country and now are highlighted by the current events, it's important that we are super radical about hope, about fighting against hopelessness and allowing joy to be the fuel that leads us to a better tomorrow. And I don't say that to be commercial or to uh, try to wipe away the passion and the pain that lays on these pavements. I say that because it's necessary, because if we become hopeless in our fight for a better tomorrow or a better today, um, then we'll lose sight and we'll lose breath in this marathon to sustainable, equitable, just freedom that we're working for. So stay hopeful. Now, in this particular episode, I did want to talk about what I call the revolutionary narratives, a case against injustice, inhumanity and hopelessness. In this first segment, I want to talk about what I believe is a history that's being put on a trial, a history that's being put on a stand when it comes down to the inhumanity of blackness in the Western world, particularly in America. 
I also want to finish this segment talking about solutions, talking about real live solutions, accountability institutionally and on a personal level. So when we look these officers or law enforcement or chiefs of police or governors or mayors in the eyes that we're not simply just screaming from the top of our lungs without any agenda on what we can do to help dismantle um, a system of white male patriarchal supremacy that is fueled by capitalism and fear, you know. And so uh, I want to I want to really highlight the fact that I, I do want to get into history. I do want to talk about some of the things that have been pressed on me because the last week since we talked, members is, you know, it's been tough. I was going to say members of the jury, but uh, <laughs> obviously this is not a, a case. But even though it feels like it in the court of public opinion, ladies and gentlemen, it's tough. You know, I've been hurting. I've been having a lot of thoughts. I've been mad. I've cried. Um, I've had thoughts of anger and violence and so many other thoughts. Right. But I've also had opportunities to talk with people about accountability, about uh, dismantling, about a serious conversation that wakes up America. Now, for me, at least I've been talking about this for a long time. Um, one of my first memories is when I was 17 years old, I um, I was at Dudley High School in Greensboro and uh, misdemeanor, but I got kicked out of what they called the Dudley Academy, which was an early college academy for students who finish high school after three years and go on to either A&T, uh, Guilford College or one of the surrounding colleges and pretty much start your career off as a freshman, even though you were a senior. So I got kicked out of, of that program and uh, I only had one class that I had to take as a senior, really two classes because I took weight training, of course, with Coach Mack. But I had to take English 12 and uh, we had to do a senior project like so many other seniors in North Carolina. And my senior project was about, you know, I keep my thesis with me. I keep it in the trunk of my car. It's kind of crazy. And my senior thesis was about the disenfranchisement and the psychological slavery of the African-American community. And I talked about education. I talked about uh, incarceration. And I talk about a case for reparations. Now I was 17 years old saying these words. And truthfully, um, I don't want to pat myself on the back as some revolutionary activist because I was still diving every day on the front lines of doing things that brought harm to my community. As I said, without too, without saying too much in previous episodes, you know, I did look up to uh, individuals in my neighborhood who had money and looked like they had hope. Those people happened to be drug dealers and you know, I happened to be a part of a, of a of a culture that that was really leading me to self-destruction. But I always had a sense of consciousness like, man, this America uh, is not the America that I see. Um, and so it was hard for me to be patriotic, patriotic, even at 17. And so I remember playing this clip from the great debaters and Denzel Washington and the um, and the actor, the lead actor, I think his name is Nate Parker. He he um, they have this scene and it talks about your righteous mind. I played that on YouTube. My brother Shaquille was way ahead of the YouTube game. This was in 2008. And uh, I played a clip on the TV screen. I plugged in the, the cords into my um, into the computer and, and I played it for the judges who was who was judging me. And in this clip, Denzel Washington, who is the, the coach of the great debaters team, he's talking about the Willie Lynch syndrome. He's talking about Willie Lynch. And I started to dive in and about the psychological effects of slavery. 
And, um, you know, I looked up and the judges were crying because here this 17 year old black boy in the south, the east side of Greensboro um, was a byproduct of gentrification and redlining and systemic um, oppression. But I also was a byproduct of a Greensboro that was known to Pete Lorillard and a Winston-Salem that was known to R.J. Reynolds. Um, which was built on tobacco in the South. The Southern economy was built on tobacco production. At one point I read that, you know, the South was, we produced 70% of the cotton in the world. And so on the backs of those persons who were, were enslaved, I come from that same lineage. And so as I'm standing at these judges, I'm articulating my passion and my pain and they crying and I'm crying and I'm just saying, we just want to be free. And I was 17. This was 2008. And so I think back to that time a lot because that's when I learned about Drapetomania. Now, you know, Drapetomania was a psychological disorder, which was registered under the American Psych Psychological Association by a scientist and psychologist by the name of Samuel A. Cartwright. And he said that a slave had to be experiencing delusions and hysteria if they wanted to escape from the plantation. You see, I recognized then that white supremacy or racism as we know it wasn't simply the people that i saw in greensboro or in the south who had big trucks and confederate flags and dirty overalls and who chew tobacco and occasionally would say the n-word if you looked at them wrong as honestly i wasn't even scared of those people i want to smoke just like they want to smoke but what was dangerous was these other types of racism that I began to become aware of, even at 17. The racism that blinds itself in the Democratic Party's allegiance for black voters, but also never doing anything to honor their black humanity. The type of racism that shows up in policies and in science, like Samuel Cartwright. And this stuff was published and people believe this. They believe the Charles Darwins of the world. You know, they believe the Ruyard Kiplings of the world. And so I really became outraged even at 17. And in the words of James Baldwin, who says that, you know, to be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in a constant state of rage. And I remember being enraged at 17 then. And then I think about just 17 hours ago, you know, or for the last 17 days, <laughs> I've been outraged. And I know that my listeners whether you are white, black, um, Asian, Hispanic, um, or you are from any cultural or racial ethnic background, I know you are enraged and you should be enraged. You know, I watched my nephew, you know, sit there at a protest in Greensboro and, and chant no justice, no peace. And I looked at his life and I, I hugged him like I never hugged him before because I knew that this rage, if we don't find a way to channel it, to help dismantle this system that continues to perpetuate how inhumane they are. Then we start to believe the, you know, the beastly ideas that they say about us. And, and it hurts, you know, because you wake up in the morning and you really want to dream. I remember Ta-Nehisi Coates in his book, um, The Beautiful Struggle. He said that um, contrary to what the professional talkers say, I never met a black boy who wanted to fail. 
And then he went on in his book, Between the World and Me, which if you haven't read that, oh, my goodness, you definitely should be reading that. My man said that America has always had this infatuation with the destruction and demolition of black bodies. You know, and I think one of the other people, one of the other books that I'm reading again at this time and that I read uh, a number of years ago is, is, is called Invisible Man. Got the whole world watching by Michael Denzel Smith. And, you know, I'm going to leave y'all with a quote that really hits me. And I, I want I want to get into this conversation about race, about racism, about the lack of humanity of black people. I don't want to just say people of color, but black people for a long time. Michael Denzel Smith goes on to say one of the more pernicious effects of racism on the psyche is the constant questioning of one's worth and purpose. It can be almost as debilitating as death. Almost. I don't I do not wish to make these things to seem equivalent. You see, I have my life. Trayvon does not. But the source of my guilt is understanding that American racism will take some of our lives while holding others up of us as exemplars of success, providing the illusion that there is an escape. It places us in the unevable position of wishing that our martyrs could have survived to become tokens. Man, I challenge you, man, go read that book. Go read Ta-Nehisi Coates. Go read James Baldwin, The Fire, next time. Go read um, so, so many of the books that I'm even thinking about, you know, Stamp from the Beginning or um, White Fragility or um, even some of the earlier work by, you know, Dr. Francis Crush Welsing and um, the autobiography of Malcolm X, if you haven't already done so. The Letter from the Birmingham Jail by Dr. King, if you haven't already done so. And I'm going to put together a book list and send it out um, on our Instagram and on our Facebook uh, with the Renaissance narratives. But, you know, this stuff has been bothering me and I know I'm not the only person. So I remember dropping a clip last week about a poem that I did when I was in law school. It's called Black History, Black Misery and Black Mystery. And. In that poem that I did in 2017, I remember saying this specific language that I'm the pain from my mother's eyes. I'm not a three fifths compromise. Let's do a history check. Do you remember they made a three fifths compromise just to negotiate if I was human? But we never questioned the actions or the buttons pushed by Harry Truman. Never forget Pearl Harbor. Never forget 9-11 or never forget the notes from the reverend who told these people that slavery was justified. They use science or they use God. So how do we, how do we dismantle systemic oppression? Now that we're saying these words like white supremacy, now that we're saying systemic racism, now that these words are now become political talking points, how do we shape a new narrative around what we want our world to look, our world to look like? Cause obviously I think we're in a beautiful time right now. You know, I just told you about the inhumanity, the three fifths compromise. I'm also reminded of a case that I read when I was in law school. I never forget this case more than Dred Scott. That decision bothered me so bad. It shook me up when I was in constitutional law class. There was another case that many people don't talk about as it relates to the enslavement of African people in modern day law enforcement. The name of that case is Prigg versus Pennsylvania, uh, a 1942 Supreme Court case 
Um, and really, it was about African-Americans as property. Right. But what's interesting is that what we what we learned from Prig versus Pennsylvania is that um, policing, as we know it, law enforcement, as we know it, it started off as slave patrol, which is evident by that case. If I'm lying, go check it out yourself, you know. And uh, even though modern policing has changed its face, the, the, the it's still rooted in law and order and whatever some of these words that have been used by Nixon and Reagan and Bush and Clinton. Um, they've been used law and order really to talk about the militarization of our streets. Right. But it always points back to the rhetoric that is surrounding around the criminality of black people. So where did that start? Well, I'll give you an idea. One of the things that you have to go check out is a 1915 movie by D.H. Griffith, and it's called The Birth of a Nation. The Birth of a Nation was one of the largest and most famous and most widely touted movies in the in 1915. Now, remember, this is when motion picture film cinema was like a big thing where people came to cinema like you had to be super, super privileged to be able to even check the premiere of um of the birth of a nation. I forget the sitting president at the time in 1915, but even he had a screening right in the white house. That's how important this movie was. Right. And you can go check this out a little bit more on the documentary 13th on Netflix, but in DH Griffith's the birth of a nation, it talked about, and it showed a depiction of black criminality. There was a white character painted in blackface to represent a black man who had, um, sexually assaulted this white woman who jumped off the mountain running from him. And the whole film for about 45 minutes is this whole tale of this black man or this white man painted in black face chasing after this innocent white woman. And then justice comes. But see, when justice comes, it comes in the form of the Ku Klux Klan. They come, they burn the cross and they take this man to quote unquote trial. They find him guilty, of course. And then they inevitably destroy his body. But justice is served. The people cheer. And from that movie, what you see is a depiction through propaganda, through media. And for the next 100 years, even in 2020, what you see on MSNBC, what you see on CNN, what you see on Fox News, even if the other news uh, channels choose not to do it for the sake of. Um, you know, intentionally showing the trauma and the destruction of black bodies. All you have to do is log on to the Internet. And you'll see this same destruction of black bodies. And it's not anything that's unoriginal from what I just shared with you when it comes down to D.H. Griffith's Birth of a Nation. And so, you know, I, I, I've been bothered by this for a long time and I've been grappling with how how relevant the three-fifths compromise is and how relevant Prig versus Pennsylvania is to what we saw in the last week. God bless the soul of George Floyd, of Breonna Taylor, of Ahmaud Arbery, um, of Mr. McAtee, who in Louisville was a pro, who was a business owner, a food man, and he got killed by law enforcement. The numbers of people who have been tear gassed, who have been hit with rubber bullets, who have been met with military obstruction, this is what's happening all because individuals all over the world are saying that black lives matter. 
But see, I want black lives to matter in policy. I want black lives to matter in education. I want black lives to matter in courtrooms. I want black lives to matter in police policy. I want black lives to matter before the United Nations as a matter of human rights. And then we can shape a new narrative about what black humanity looks like, because as we know, from the conception of America, literally from the moment that America began to even draft its idea that we, the people, when they said those words, when they said that we are endowed inalienable rights by our creator, they didn't think about black people. They compromised our humanity. Even Thomas Jefferson. While he's writing the Declaration of Independence, he literally looks out of his window and he has slaves. He has black women who he called his concubines. Sarah Fleming. I'm not making this up. Everything is is accurate, you know, but I've been bothered by this. I was bothered by this at 17. And I was bothered by this when I stood in front of the classroom of my students and taught seventh grade social studies. And I was bothered by this when I went to law school and I was learning criminal procedure or constitutional law. And the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, the Sixth Amendment, if you ask anybody who took any criminal procedure class or criminal justice class or constitutional law class, it is it is it is very apparent that black humanity has not been prioritized. But today that changes. It changes with me. That changes with with you. That changes when we see that black humanity is an is an is a step towards us achieving liberty and justice for all. Now, we're going to take a break. But before we take our break, I want to tell you about a poem that I shared and we're going to listen to that. I call it Sean Carter G. Woodson. And what that is, is it's a snapshot into understanding the miseducation of the Negro by Carter G. Woodson and understanding the hustle and the way that we should shift the culture like Sean Carter. So check it out. Listen to it intently. And I hope you enjoy it. We'll be right back. You see, this the type of shit that make him say, I'm gonna call Dr. King on him because his mind too open. He's too radical or her hair is too natural. It's too magical. And now I look on TV and I see that We keep crying and we keep dying, but we keep pushing. That's why I hustle like Sean Carter mixed with Carter G. Woodson. And the truth is, you got to be bold. So we ain't scared to fly. And I realize that I only start living when I ain't scared to die. So the truth is, I lift my head up to the most high, to the hills in which my help come from. But then I realized... That the American paradox is that we've always had an infatuation with the demolition of black bodies. And while a white slave master can say that they can't be human, he still walks into the darkness of the night to go get his black love. Or what about that black man to kill a white girl with the black glove? Yeah, that's OJ. But we can't say that. Made in America. Fueled by terror. Spurled by hatred. They love to see us on March Madness, but they hate when we be marching in madness. No protests. Because your body and your mind is so grotesque. But we be Martin and we be Pac. And we be Carter and we be Woodson. And we keep dying. And we keep crying, but we keep pushing. 
Good people, good people. Welcome back to the Renaissance Narratives Podcast. And I'm glad that you stayed with us during the break. I hope you enjoyed um, me sharing my piece, Sean Carter G. Woodson. Now, I wrote that, really I didn't write it. I recorded that um, October 24th, 2018. I was in law school and I used to, you know, do a lot of voice memos um, just in the library sometimes in between studying. And that is one of them. And it's kind of scary how almost two years later it is so, so relevant. But I use that piece to talk about solutions. Um, You hear that I talk about and I contrast the life of Sean Carter and Carter G. Woodson. Or I might contrast the life of Tupac Shakur and Martin Luther King Jr. Or I might contrast the life of Malcolm X and Nipsey Hussle. Or I might contrast the life of Beyonce and Nikki Giovanni or Zora Neale Hurston and Rihanna or influential cultural figures, uh, both then and now. And that embodies the spirit of the Renaissance. And so now I want to talk about solutions and I won't be long because I think we have talked in great length about the problems, the issues, and really it centers around the um, the lack of honoring black humanity in America, the founding of white imperialistic male patriarchal white supremacy. We have to say those words. White people have to say those words. Black people have to say those words. Brown people, beige people, yellow people, polka dot people, green people. We have to say those words. You know, black people have been experiencing the atrocities that the modern news has caught up to for years And we don't want to let this moment pass by. We want it to be a revolutionary movement that occurs. And I'm telling you, this generation is not is not begging anymore. We we, we want real solutions. And so I want to spend these next few minutes talking about solutions. And earlier I opened up the episode talking about hope because hopelessness is the enemy of justice. Hopelessness is the enemy of of goodness. Hopelessness is the enemy of progress. And I know even saying those words like progress and hope, it's hard, it's painful. And we don't want to rush to solutions too quick, but we also don't want to be basking in darkness for too long. And so I want to talk about from my perspective, and I'm going to share some resources after this episode about some of the ways that that white people and black people and all people can help. Because, like I said, until this becomes a human issue, um, it'll be just another hashtag. And I refuse to let this moment pass us by. So let's talk about what we can do. First and foremost, we can all educate ourselves. We can read books that point back to not just the history of injustice and, um, you know, inequity in our country, but also we can be educated about the systems that we're looking to shake up. Because I see a lot of people upset. I see a lot of people angry. I see a lot of people looking to allow their and they should be. We should be on the streets. I protested here in Charlotte. I protested in Greensboro. I stand with all the people on the front lines. Right. But we have to do more than that. We have to talk about how do we develop systems that help eradicate, disrupt and dismantle systems of white supremacy. Right. And one of those ways is to educate ourselves on our history and on the current state of affairs. Right. I know a lot of people in this generation, especially North Carolinians, don't care a lot about educating themselves with voting, primarily because a in 2013, 
um, North Carolina repealed the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which was an act of terror and voter suppression. And then just in 2019, um, we were you know, we were we were scolded by the United States Supreme Court for drawing gerrymandered districts that were racially gerrymandered, you know. And so educate yourself about where you are, even though you don't feel like voting. Remember that local elections and statewide elections, that is how you're most affected. You know, think about um, if you haven't heard about, you know, um, you know, citizens review boards where you can hold police accountable for misconduct. And the people on those boards need to be people that do care about black humanity, right? You need to know what your mayor states and your chief of police. These are the people who you need to be addressing directly, just as much as we are addressing people on the streets through protests and demonstration, right? And you won't hear me condemn even, you know, sometimes when we hear about riots, because I told you that Dr. Martin Luther King even said, you know, that, that a riot is the language of the unheard and people are tired of being unheard. But we have to take this pain off our pavements and we have to turn it into policy and action. So first we need to educate ourselves. And then for for people who want to build coalitions across lines of difference and specifically if you want allies and co-conspirators between white people and black people, because we do not necessarily need white people for our liberation. But white people are very necessary in understanding and being on the front lines with dismantling white supremacy. And one of the things that I do want to quote and I'm, I was really excited to see was, you know, I know Ben and Jerry's put out a very powerful statement. And one of the things that they said that, that, that I was, you know, I was glad to see a corporation stand out and do this. You know, they said that the murder of George Floyd was the result of inhumane police brutality that is perpetuated by a culture of white supremacy. What happened to George Floyd was not the result of a bad apple. It was the predictable consequence of a racist and prejudiced system and culture that has treated black bodies as the enemy from the beginning. What happened to George Floyd in Minneapolis is the fruit born of toxic seeds planted on the shores of our country in Jamestown in, in 1619, when the first enslaved men and women arrived on this continent. Floyd is the latest in a long list of names that stretches back to the time at that shore. Some of those names we know, like Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Oscar Grant, Eric Garner, Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Emmett Till, Martin Luther King Jr. Most, we don't. So what's going to keep us from seeing more black bodies being reduced to hashtags? And then we move on to the next trauma on nightly news. It takes people and organizations and corporations like Ben and Jerry's, corporations like Nike, corporations like Amazon, corporations like Target, corporations like Chick-fil-A, corporations like um, our restaurants that we pledge our allegiance to. If they're not going to stand on the front lines and, and sacrifice what they consider their corporate opportunity or their tax benefit or their funding or their Republican allegiance, then they are not serious about dismantling white supremacy. Right or defunding police initiatives or educating police initiatives. And then when it comes out to black people, we have to recognize we have to invest in our own, right? We have to invest in our own communities. We have to invest in our own black businesses and we have to invest and educate ourselves, right? Because I do like what Fred Hampton said one time when he said that reparations without education is dangerous. I'm gonna say that again, reparations without education 
is dangerous. Now, I'm not talking about university education. I'm talking about if we don't know what to do with these reparations, if we don't know what to do, if we don't have any action items behind this, then we're doomed and we screwed and we write back crying those same tears. So we have to be able to be the architects of our own future, be the engineers of our own freedom. And that starts with us understanding and investing and standing bold. Right. And then there's a lot of other things that we can do when it comes down to funding organizations that are dedicated to, uh, you know, dismantling um, unjust police practices. One of the ones that I donate to that I that I really um, support is Campaign Zero. Um, I learned a lot about Campaign Zero from Sam Sinyawe and um, Brittany Packnett Cunningham, who I follow. Um, check both of those people out. Also, they are co-hosts on Pod Save the People. And, you know, there's a lot of other, um, indi- you know, individual um, police reform organizations. So really, you might want to go research the ones that are closest to you. And I'll also provide a list of these things after this episode. But you know, that's what we need to do. We need to fund policy organizations that are shaped at doing research and really confronting police brutality and misconduct. Citizen review boards or, um, you know, prosecutors know who your local prosecutor is. Put pressure on your local on your local prosecutor. Have panel discussions. Um, I remember when I was in law school, I did a forum called Black, Brown and Blue on 21st century policing. And I invited you know, Lauren Freeman from Wake County DA's office. I invited, um, you know, law professors from all over the state. I invited and I talked to people like Tucson Romaine in, in North Carolina. And that's what you should do in whatever state you're in um, is hold these people accountable. Right. And you become educated enough so that you know how to hold these people accountable. And when you invest your money or you donate, you're donating to organizations that can actually um, and that are, that are all about real change. Um, and even though I don't like the bail system, there are protesters that are constantly being arrested. So um, challenge your local defense attorneys to you know, provide pro bono legal services or look to people in your state and in your city um, who are actually providing pro bono legal services um, and bail funds for individuals who become arrested. Um, there's a lot of things that we can do, and I'm going to post um, some of the things that we can do because it's too much. And I don't want people to become overwhelmed and begin to feel helpless. But the main thing is that we have to be empowered by our voice. And this entire episode is dedicated to creating new narratives. That's why I'm so important. I die about this mission because we have to create a new idea about what freedom looks like. We have to create a a new idea about what black humanity looks like. You know, there are creators, there are digital storytellers, there are artists, there are lawyers, there are policymakers, there are individuals who literally are in positions to shape a new narrative. And I'm telling you, that's one of the most revolutionary things that we can do is change history, change her story, say his name, say her name. But let us not just stop at our hashtags. Let us use our voice. Let us create systems. Let us mobilize. Let us strategize. Let us be organized. Let us come up with a list of demands. And if people don't meet those demands, you know, that's the most democratic thing that we can do. I hate when people get mad about protesting when America was founded on protest. The utter hypocrisy and hyperbole that people use when they talk about why you protest. An American was founded on revolution. They were founded on revolution. 1771, 1773, 1776. Come on now. So that's the most American thing you can do is to remember that the power 
belongs to the people, not to the people that are in power. So remember that. Now, I'll close this episode by by asking us to take a moment of silence to honor the life of those who we have lost in this fight for a more equitable and just world. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning into the Renaissance Narratives podcast. I'm your host, Nishad Davis, and I'll be here every Saturday with more stories and more ideas and more guests so that we can shape a new narrative and shape a new world. I thank you so much for you tuning in today. And I ask that we move past the pain on our pavements and move into shaping policy in the world that we live in. Until next time, I'll see you.